0: Dynamics. Quantum happy quantum monday, quantum quantum dynamics happy monday everybody
1: happy monday joe How's
0: yeah that's <laughs> good. good we were just spending the uh the time before talking about uh quantum chromodynamics which i have no idea what that is but apparently santona you did your uh phd in that so we can talk more about that 30
1: second version yeah
2: i mean the version is that it's like uh it's, it's for color charges what qed quantum electrodynamics is for electric charges and uh, color charges are just, you know, more made up, uh, they're they're harder to see. You can interact with electrons, but you can't really interact with quarks and gluons, which are the particles that are affected by the QCD force. But yeah, it's one of the four fundamental forces uh, in addition to gravity and weak uh, nuclear and electric, electromagnetic. Um, why do I feel like I'm missing one right now? <laughs> <But> yeah, <it's, laughs> uh-huh. It's one of the four fundamental forces. Uh, it's the strongest, which is why it's called the strong nuclear force. And it's, it also acts on the shortest range. So if you go inside a proton, then there are quarks in there that um, have the strong nuclear force interacting between them.
1: And, and so basically, so if you're can just only joining the... this indirectly, <laughs> when things collide, right? Like they, the particles collide, sure. they sort of tear each other apart. And then you got these bizarre interactions happening behind the scenes. <laughs>
2: exactly huh. we uh, at like the Large Hadron Collider and other colliders around the world we collide particles really high energies smash them up make you know for a little split second we can see these um, more smaller particles ish usually what happens is you have this massive energy deposit so you create heavier particles that normally don't exist and then those decay away to less heavy particles and that sort of gives you a glimpse into the theory of the strong nuclear
0: force so so if you're just joining the uh monday morning data chat uh we, we just jumped in on the deep end on uh, nuclear physics so um <laughs> um yeah it's fun the uh so uh, but now um for people who don't know who you are do you want to give a quick intro Santana? on since uh yeah happy the, to uh, technology of... yeah
2: <laughs> hi i'm shantana uh, my background is in nuclear physics where i started working with uh, data we produce in these collisions massive amounts of data uh, which we then have to analyze to try to find those like physics answers um so that's that's where i got my start and then i worked as a machine learning engineer in uh, a product in the natural language uh, processing space for customer relationship management. Um, this was at Directly, and then I went to uh, Astronomer, which is a managed airflow service, worked as a data scientist there, and now I'm at Upsolver, um, which is um, another data workflow authoring tool, but um, we handle streaming and batch as well. And, uh, yeah, that's that's where I am right now as uh, head of data.
0: It's a very obvious career path. Uh, I mean... <laughs> uh from working at a uh, um yeah nuclear physics to uh, uh data companies um yeah but uh, today we're gonna talk about product management as a data scientist uh all the uh, the super fun parts of being a data scientist that you never knew you needed to know about um so <laughs> i guess let's jump into it uh since we already jumped in off the deep end uh <laughs> right out of the gate talking about nuclear physics um what what is it? What, what? So you worked as a data scientist and then along the way you started doing some other stuff. Uh, what were those other things?
2: Yeah, I think I've always been product inclined. Um, and that's sort of why that's like, to me, they're, they're the same kind of to an extent, like there's so much bleed through between data and, and product work, uh, at least in my experience. Um, but I think where it stems from for me is I'm like, I'm never satisfied with, the implementation alone, right? I, I have to know the bigger picture. I have to know where it fits in, um, then I'm like almost to a fault hesitant to move to the implementation stage without fleshing out the, you know, higher picture um, understanding and like what are we trying to build and why are we build it and so on and so forth. And actually, I think research might have something to do with it too, because you know, in uh, in order to get a PhD, right, you have to really understand. Where where we are today, what everyone else is doing, and where there is room to make that like bump in the circle, as they say, to um, you know make your contribution to move the field forward. So I feel like that like holistic picture of of things is like super ingrained in me. Um, so that's that's I think my like why I think the two are so uh, so interconnected, and I think everywhere that I've that I've been, I've tried to like I've. Definitely, like been the most product inclined on the on the data team, and thinking about those things.
1: So to rewind more specifically to your physics experience, do you feel like you started developing that product mindset before you ever set foot inside of a tech company?
2: Yeah, I, I definitely think so. So I got to lead an analysis team. Uh, when I worked at CERN, um, then UC Davis, and I was I, I owned the analysis, and you know when I say analysis, they usually last two to three years. They're much longer term than uh, projects tend to be in in uh, in industry. Um, and in this uh, time period, I owned the analysis. I was a point person for the team, um, and so like all the typical like talking to all the stakeholders and we had layers and layers of stakeholders um, and reviews and and, like it's an ongoing uh, process, very iterative. So um, I think that's, uh, I I was doing a lot of product type work then, understanding, you know, what we're building, why the documentation, the um, honestly, even like motivation for the team, right? Uh, Like it's not enough for the product owner to know why you're building something. Like I feel like, everyone needs some sort of uh, what why you know why are we kind of doing this but you kind of want to funnel that information a bit um, so I was doing all of that project management was a part of it um, and then another thing that came from that work is this idea of building the I, I call it the baseline framework but like you know like the, the minimum right minimum viable product ish the the POC and then fleshing out parts of it so you can imagine with the two three year analysis like, you could easily get lost um, in different places, but like doing that uh, end-to-end work skeleton within you know a couple months time frame, and then building on top of that. Um, so really like, super intuitive, I think came from there as well.
1: How did you make the leap? Um, that's what I'm always curious about. Like how did you decide, hey, I'm gonna go from this kind of product mindset on physics to doing data science or machine learning at a company instead?
2: Yeah. Um, it's actually, you know, Joe, uh, Joe was joking earlier, like the obvious pathway. It's a very common path these days, like to go from True. physics <laughs> physics to data, or especially as, as... Or, or a,
0: math, yeah.
2: Or math, yeah. It, within physics, it's usually particle physics or uh, astronomy, both of which fields are very data heavy. Um, so there was, there was that, like a lot of the folks who were leaving with their PhDs around that time, we're going to data science. So that's sort of what put it on the radi- uh, on my radar. Um, and beyond that, like my partner is also a physics PhD and we sort of decided together that we wouldn't solve the two body problem. <laughs> so we both were both uh, ML focused data scientists. Uh, yeah, I mean, a bunch of, and we were local to NorCal, Northern California. So a lot of things sort of fell into place. Um, I never really wanted to be a professor. Um, and it was—I I wanted a PhD, which is a very weird motivation, I think, to get a PhD. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed the research; I loved physics. But I was like, "Yeah, this is this is sort of, you know, w- what I want to do as far as like studying goes." Um, so once once I was there, I was ready to make the switch um, to industry. And then I think another thing that folks are um, maybe, it's, or at least it might, this might be useful for some people uh, m- looking to make that transition, right, from academia to industry. It was, um, I mean, it it always takes some time and, you know, going through it myself and seeing my friends do it. So uh, there's just that, like, you know, getting used to interviewing and getting used to industry terms and stuff. But um, one of the ways in which I found it very, I I found it relatively easy is um, just, you know, I really spoke about and to my data experience within physics and I still do like when I'm, when I'm talking about my journey and like what I do, I I start uh, with the data work that I was doing as a physicist, because I mean, I've said this very loudly and I will continue to say this, um, when you're in grad school, that's years of experience, right? So there's that aspect of it. And then there's, you know, I was doing all this, product management, project management work. I was working with data, rigorous statistical analysis, um, communication, you know, writing papers, giving talks, like all of these things um, were very transferable um, to, to data science specifically. And I would uh, very much speak to that.
0: What was your experience like, Matt? I mean, you, you have a very similar-ish path. Um, uh, you are a math professor for a long time and also did your PhD and then joined the dark side and... and uh, Gravitator towards industry. Does it, does it sound uh, familiar to you? Uh,
1: so, so somewhat certain themes, I think, are very familiar. Um, it, it's funny, in in math, I feel like there's sort of a social capital problem where a lot of people don't realize what career options are available. And this makes sense, right? Because your advisors and the professors you work with don't really generally know what happens out in the out in the world, right? They don't know much about the tech industry, and so they kind of give you some vague advice, like maybe you can go to the NSA, or maybe you can teach, or something like this. Um, and so it was really one of my, my classmates that got me into data science and said, hey, I have this job as a data scientist. Are you interested in applying and joining my team? Uh, Dylan Swick, actually, he, he later jumped in and started a startup, and now he's teaching again. But Anyway, he, he got me started in the domain and it was just like having that opportunity of someone pointing out this career possibility and then me getting started and actually finding that I really liked it and finding also that the data engineering aspect was interesting too, which I had not anticipated because I just hadn't worked in the field at all. So I, I think as a, if you're a graduate student, if you're getting a PhD, make sure you talk to lots of people kind of in your department but also outside of academia just to see what's out there. And I think at this point, professors are starting to realize that they need to have those conversations to sort of broaden their circle of understanding about career possibilities. I'm seeing more, and more Well, yeah. Better. I
0: remember we we went and uh, talked to um, some of the undergrads at the math department a few years ago, right? To maybe open their eyes to other career paths besides, um, you know, I think the typical uh, trodden path of at least a math graduate. But you also did your, your master's in physics, right, Matt? So at least you kind of had the... Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, I did. And then jumped over, so to, math, of the same jumped over point. to the jumped yeah. over dark side, basically.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah. Jeez.
2: No, I think it is changing, like uh, especially at UC Davis, like we have now this, um, you know, sort of alumni series that's not just focused uh, on folks who went on to stay in academia, but like different fields uh, and like talking about their journeys and just like giving that, uh, it's a larger sampling of what you can do uh, with a PhD. And like I'm, I'm involved with that. And I think in a lot of places we're we're seeing more of that.
1: And I, I think it's, it's very important because the reality is that it's a minority of people who can stay in academia and it's a smaller yeah. minority who can be in research one institutions, which the, the point is your PhD really is more training for research one or just good experience in life, right? Like you were saying, Shantana. And so, yeah, it's good. To, you just need those outside perspectives about what most people are going to end up doing, quite
0: frankly. Yep. Actually, Dan Everett has a question here. Uh, Dan asks, what skills... Will data engineers and scientists need to help with data product management? We can also get into data, data products separately, but yeah, what do you, what do you think, Shardana?
2: Yeah, so I wanted to talk about like a couple of different things. Uh, one is sort of uh, putting on the product manager hat for when building an NLP product, like an ML based product where the end users are um, just normal people, like, like everyone. Um, including developers, but also just everyone. And then there's the um, sort of being a product-minded person on an analytics team, where your um, users are intern, other internal teams to that company, which is a little bit different, um, maybe a lot of bit different. Um, and then also like in the data tooling space, that's again a little different. So um, I, like I. I I would like to answer Dan's question or from my perspective, um, sort of generally, but like I would like to get into the differences between those things at some point. So, you know, data products is is a term, (laughs) so we have to handle that. Um, So for me, I can, you know, basically speak from my experience, right? Um, What's really helped me is uh, curiosity. yeah like a desire to learn and like desire as as i said before desire to understand like the bigger picture um and asking a lot of questions i am like very unafraid to ask questions um you know strongly believe that there is no such thing as a dumb question and that's like both from um oh i don't know this what is it to like oh um you know as an outsider this is how i would approach it please tell me why this is wrong, or you know, if you've moved on, or if you considered this and, and moved on, or like, have you thought about this before? That that kind of you know question that makes makes you think. Um, so like, just there's just a wide range of way wide wide range of ways you can ask questions, and um, I've really you know <laughs> uh, embraced that. Um, documentation, I think, is a really big one. I think all good good engineers, period, and scientists are. You know, good at writing documentation, or should be, <laughs> and um, that's uh, very transferable between data work and product management work. Um, the, I mean, not just documenting what you're doing or what we're what you're planning to do, but um, like, why are you making certain decisions, right? Like, what is what else did you consider? Uh, why were those um, worse ideas? And one of the things that we did, especially in physics um, with data work, is like this idea of the systematic uncertainty, right? Where you, um, you, know, you make certain choices as you analyze data to get to a result, but at every point you could have made a different choice. And not, it's not always clear that one choice is much, much better than the other. So when two things are closer, like you, you think of that second best route, Uh, that you could have taken to get to an uh, answer, and you compare those two answers, and that's a kind of uncertainty that you point to. So I think that that all comes from this idea of thinking about the possible universe rather than just the one universe. Um, That kind of mindset has helped me. Um, And I mean, there's an obvious one, which is as a technical person, Um, I think this is what people often think of uh, for technical PMs is like if you're used to working with data, you have a sense of how to build metrics and how to calculate those metrics and stuff. And that definitely does help because that's a part of product management for sure. So having the data literacy is there.
0: I mean, there's quite a bit there, though, right? I mean, Matt and I talk about this a lot, too. You mentioned probabilistic thinking. I I don't think this is something that's normally uh, taught or emphasized very much, especially in the business world. Um, I I think Matt and I, um, our observations are uh, the business uh, tends to want um, a single answer and and tends to think very uh, uh, deterministically about things. Um, And I think as we all know, the world doesn't really operate that way. Uh, There's a range of outcomes that could occur and, uh, you know, it's very meandering, kind of like all of our careers. (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) But I don't know, Matt, do you have anything you want to add to that? Because I think this is something we, we hit on quite a bit. And I know this is something you, you harp on a lot, uh, so, but it's, I, I it's underrated. I, as a skill.
1: completely agree. And, and I think that there are various issues here. So for one thing in the business world, we like to tell stories, which is great. We all like to tell stories, right? But if you look at the retrospective coverage of COVID, we tell this story about how it unfolded, like it was the only way it could have unfolded, or like, oh, we could have done this here, and it would have gone one of two day- ways. And it's like, well, that's not really how the world works. There's there's a whole space of probabilities and possibilities, a whole big space of possible universes, to what you were saying before, Shantona. And so that's what we need to think about. We need to think about just like kind of making the best decisions in the moment, And I think part of what I've seen happen in the past, I've watched my siblings and friends take statistics in college, and it's this very hard, rigorous class that emphasizes mathematical proofs. And hey, I love a good proof, like that's my my world from being a PhD student. But we tend to then distract students who are not into math and proofs from the underlying statistical thinking, from the thinking about possibilities, from the thinking about the idea that the story is not just simple cause and effect. It's that you make decisions and then you can have a whole bunch of possible outcomes that come out of those decisions because the world itself is full of probabilities. And it's not just simple determinism that we're dealing with.
0: Well, especially when it comes to products, right? I mean, it's, it's there, there's a lot of... Uh there's a lot you got to consider right customer preferences uh, is one and that, that's a changing dynamic the economy is a uh, obviously a big factor in a lot of things uh and so it, it's not just say um what what book do i have here uh you know there's you talk about four <laughs> forces in physics there's the five forces of a competitive strategy here by michael porter which is like the you know it's sort of the uh, uh traditional mba book but i mean that's this book is great, but it also and it gives you a rubric of which to think about um, competitive dynamics. But again, there there's so many external factors that can occur that can, you know, uh, completely trump the rubric that most people are taught, especially again in yeah. uh, MBA programs, um, you know, business schools. So yeah. Anyway. Neat stuff. And
2: this is where we transition to talking about the multiverse <laughs>
0: uh product management in a multiverse, yes, actually. So <laughs>
2: And I could rant for a long time about
1: how that's been turned into this kind of weird trope in fiction that doesn't have much to do with the actual (laughs) multiverse. But never mind, let's not get too far (laughs) off track here. Um, let, Let me ask this. So a big part of product is to figure out how you sell the product. In other words, not just product market fit, but like how there's this whole marketing aspect of like how do I actually get people to use my product? How do I get them to pay for it? And I know that that's a problem in particle physics as well. In other words, you know, the U.S. government the EU are paying these huge bills to build these machines that most people day to day don't care about. And so there's this whole outreach effort to the public to like communicate, hey, this is important research, this is why we should spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on this. Were you involved in that at all? Did you feel like your work was, it, was any of it public facing in a way that would kind of sell the idea that it would evangelize the whole process?
2: Yeah, hundred like, percent. Every analysis that we did as part of my uh, research group, right, was an additional um, item in that. Like, whenever we wrote grant proposals, it's 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 the narrative. I think that matters, as you said. It's all about communicating, right? So year over year, we're applying, reapplying for these grants, and we have to show progress. We have to show like, not just like this, we did this analysis, but also like what was the physics outcome of that analysis and then the five others that we did before that. So like building that uh, narrative across years and across like uh, in, in, um, in industry, it would be like you're building a product where you're adding features. Right. And like, how do they connect with each other? This is how I look at it and definitely like want to hear your, uh, your perspective, uh, both of yours, but, um, this, like to me, um, if especially like uh, as a company that's not like too scatterbrained and like doing too many different and this is why i think too many different things doesn't really work is because you have to be able to pull everything together and weave it into a complete narrative um, and every feature that you're pushing out to your users should add to their user experience of your product if you want to build you know something completely different just you know that that's probably a pivot, or at least like think of that as as kind of separate, like maybe you're generating um, the funds for supporting a different product from an existing product, but don't like diss your your product that already has some product market fit and folks are using it. I didn't mean to say diss, I meant to say ditch. (laughs) So yeah, for for me, um, that's kind of how I look at it.
1: Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I feel like there are There is a a lot of overlap here. I mean, one of the things that's been a real struggle for data science, I feel like, especially over the last five years, so before five years ago, there was so much buzz around data science and machine learning that you could just walk into your CEO and they would sign a check for all this money. And I feel like over the last five years, it's been like, okay, what what are the results that we're seeing here? Like this team... Well, except really now with expensive. chat GPT, yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. Generative has just exploded. But that's also making people question more conventional data science approaches, yeah. which I think are still very important. I don't know. What's your take on this, show.
0: Well, yeah, there's a whole slew of important... Uh, 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 machine learning and statistical approaches that i don't know but transformers don't do i mean that's just how it is so transformers being the uh, underlying mechanism that makes generative ai work right but uh yeah it's 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 interesting i uh i mean what's your take on this too uh because it's it's you know you, you want to stay pretty level-headed, uh, as a data scientist, uh, well, hopefully maybe you don't, that's actually a pretty big assumption. Um, but, uh, you know, when applying product management techniques to data science, like how much do you want to tune in or tune out a lot of the hype that surrounds you? Cause I think this is a big factor, as Matt was saying, like I saw this, um, you know, and participated firsthand in this back in the, uh, the heyday of you know, data science 1.0 and, two and now 3.0 right so it's like uh every single time there's a i think an element of exuberance followed by uh sort of the uh walk of shame home the next morning so uh <laughs> so, i don't know how do you, how do you measure the because it, it's this is one of these things right i know it's like you, you want to um have a you know some element of staying quote relevant in the, in the marketplace's eye but at the same time you also want to I think how a little pragmatism, I don't know what your thoughts are.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's, that's such a good question. So I will admit that my, um, I went to the NLP sector um, out of my PhD is because that was the time to go in. I mean, and, and yeah, it was like one of, one of the good times to get into NLP let's put it that way. I mean, some might mm-hmm. argue right now it's the right time, but you know, computer vision had kind of been, been gone through its, like uh, heyday. I mean, of course, there are applications. I'm not saying it went away, but like you weren't doing a lot of new. Um, this was three, four years ago. Like uh, a whole lot of new um, uh, computer vision work, but NLP was becoming the next big thing. So that that like definitely partly drew me to it. It's like, oh, this is going to become. Uh, this is already you know starting to have really cool applications, and uh, you know sort of like that feeling of getting in on. Not ground zero, but when, when everyone's when it's kind of becoming that hype cycle, um, and I definitely don't regret that. Like going into uh, NLP and working as an uh, as a machine learning engineer, I learned so much, right? Like both from like engineering, production engineering, best practices, um, all the way to like how does how do transformers work, right? And what how does um, how do we build these uh, large language language models? Uh, but now I'm very um, like almost on, on the opposite side. Like I refused, <laughs> I refused to engage with posts on social media that have to do with chat GPT or any of the GPTs really. And it's, it's probably the other extreme and it's probably unnecessary, but I think that like, there's a real danger of like the hype cycle being all permeating. Right. And uh, there's definitely lots of folks um, that are excited about it and that It gives me joy because, you know, should be excited about things. And um, insofar as it is uh, unprecedented time that we're in um, right now, all of that is great. I just um, I personally make this choice because I don't want to like. I don't want to contribute to blowing it out of proportion, if that makes sense. So, in my small way, I'm like, I'm not going to engage in this. I want to see uh, what what folks build. I do want to see applications, um, and I think there are going to be some cool applications. Like my my partner was talking about, like uh, building a, a game game master on top of ChatGPT GPT for D and D games, which I think would be a really fun application. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm a little bit like. Skep- more on the skeptical side uh, today, I think, not not of the technology but of the you know uproar
1: the hype basically yeah okay
0: well, I mean but you gotta uh, oh go go I'm on I know.
1: oh I, I was just gonna ask, like you went through that hype cycle, you use that as kind of a, a launching off point for your career. what would you advise someone who's just getting into it? should they follow the hype or should they do something else
2: um it it depends um i to be honest i don't understand prompt engineering as a concept of a discipline right um, i mean i i sort of understand the idea behind it but it's like it's sort of like eggs in all eggs in, in one basket right like if someone came to me today and said, "Hey, I am I am devoting you know the next two years of my life just studying prompt engineering because I know this is for sure a job that's going to exist in in two years and you know this is going to be great," I would probably tell them to take a pause. Um, it's not even because it's less; it's ill-defined what prompt engineering is, in my opinion. But also, like uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I personally am like I like learning a lot of different things um and of course you run into the issue of like bandwidth right so um you know there should be a few things that that you uh that you dig deeper into but like just i would keep an open mind to other other um possibilities as well
0: prompt engineering is the sexiest job of the 21st century though so i think uh yeah it's uh We'll see. Um, actually, and Ryan Dolly, he's at the Gartner Summit right now in London. He has his comment here. The hype is out of control. Every single vendor here at Gartner uh, Data London is touting their GPT strategy. And as far as I can tell, it's 100%. It builds charts and describes them. Oh, so they moved off Data Mesh now and they're out into uh, GPT. That's pretty cool to see. Um, There's going to yeah. be a
1: book about GPT. Like, there, there are books about Transformers already, but like, what's going to be the big book that just blows up?
0: well i mean for my the book i'm working on right now it, it, actually generative ai forced me to to take a pause and, and assess how that's going to affect data modeling i mean in a very real way cuz it, it it will so uh but what that looks like and to try to separate you know complete vendor uh you know bs versus reality i think is uh, it's so this is happening in in you know real time no no pun intended to upsolver um but uh um the uh you know so i don't know it, it's interesting cuz we're 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 watching, you know, just an inflection point happening, uh, you know, whether or not this goes anywhere. I, I personally think it will. Uh, I think that this is, um, uh, you know, but now my, my, my opinions on, on stuff like ChatGPT, the more I'm using it, and I use it all the time, uh, it's, to me, it's just another way of, of um, you know, asking questions and querying data and, and getting something out of it. It's, you know, it's, it's as simple as that, and same with stuff like, you uh, mid-journey and whatever. It's just a way of remixing data in a way. And that's how I'm doing it, kind of like, some a DJ and shit. So, like, i just got to think about the remix. But um, I'm actually writing an article about this, too, because I feel like it's sort of, it reminds me a lot of when um, uh, the web browser happened and you're able to interface with data in a, you know, a, at a like graph way. Um, and it you know, reminds me a lot of HTML in that regard. But, so, but this gives you the ability to blend data in different ways that, again, is very probabilistic and has Potentially rhyme or reason, and sometimes makes up utter, uh, I don't know, crap. Like Matt was an engineer at Airbnb, and I'm an engineer at Google, according to a bard. So um,
1: that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah just maybe, maybe it predicts the future. Up. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe, what we'll be doing. Yeah, maybe but. it does. It, it kinda yeah. Joe, do you remember when like Photoshop first came out? I mean I think it started to really get traction. Maybe it was like the late eighties, early nineties, where all of a sudden even newspapers would take pictures they'd taken and then modify them to clean up problems in the picture and it was like yeah. this revolutionary technology. And eventually we started noticing that a lot of Photoshop was really, really bad, actually, <laughs> that it was like, it's cool that you can do this. But like it became very noticeable when people were using Photoshop and such. And it also kind of reminds me of all the hype over like 3D effects in movies in the early days. They looked so cool. And then after a while, it's like, oh, every movie is a Marvel movie.
0: Now. Yeah, it's, it's going
1: it's... to be useless. It's just that the hype will die down a bit and then we'll see what the actual impact is. And there will be an impact. Yeah. Maybe not exactly what we think it's going to be right now. Yeah,
0: and Roger here. Yeah, he's he's got the most genius thing ever. Just have ChatGPT build data meshes. So, uh, Ryan Dolly at Gartner, if you're if you uh, um, if you want to pitch this idea to everybody there, I think you're you're onto um, you know greatness in life and did, uh, fame. So, or, or data it's fabrics awesome.
1: maybe if you're at Gartner. So.
0: Yeah, true. Or data um, franchises. I think was another term that was thrown out. But I heard. Um, How about data spaghetti? Anyway.
2: I like data spaghetti. <laughs>
0: You could do that too. Yeah, and that's it's more of the reality that all of us face actually, so. Um, uh, well, I wanna right. make one
2: one comment about ChatGPT in case anyone is uh, actually wanting to hear this opinion. Like I wouldn't learn anything from ChatGPT. I would use it uh, for like, if I had a corpus um, of documents and I needed like some sort of, you know, a classification or something like that, I, I would use it because that, I mean, that's all transformer models, right? Um, but I would not ask ChatGPT, hey, tell me about this thing um, and then like take any, any of that. I mean, some of it's going to be accurate, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't like ever seek to learn anything from ChatGPT.
1: What's it going to no. tell you about quantum chromodynamics? Maybe we should try this right now. <laughs> yeah, we
2: could try it. Well,
0: this is, in fact, something I've been doing with my kids, though, right? So I've been having them use ChatGPT because I'm just like, screw it. You're all going to be using it anyway. But... Uh, have them figure out what's what's uh, right and where it's um, BSing you.
2: That's a funny It's a really answer.
0: good, th- a really good thought exercise. And I've been thinking about applying this to in the context of uh, teaching classes too. Where you know, if I were to go teach another class, I fully expect students are going to use GPT at this point. That's cats out of the bag on that one. But but does it give you the right answers or not? Right, and I think that's that's it's, it's more of like being able to discern what's what's. Uh, True and um and false I think is going to be more of the skill that's necessary because the problem is you, uh, you have basically a mass distribution of bullshit at this point, and it's um only going to get way worse uh, I, I don't I don't think that we're uh capable of as, as a society like figuring that out and making it better so anyway um yeah fun fun times uh um, how does it relate back to product management I don't know um <laughs> <but> <laughs> Okay, so here's a question. Money, money data morning science, data tangents. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why people tune in, right? They just want to hear us go off on crazy things. Uh, where, where do you weigh in on the question of should data science be agile, and how do you make it agile if the answer is yes?
2: Yes. So no. Um, I don't think. Okay. That. Okay. <laughs> uh, personally, uh, I this comes more from the perspective of a data developer having been on a more agile uh, or like a scrum team right where uh um, we're explicit or two where we were explicitly trying to incorporate agile um concepts and um in both of those experiences like it's probably you know i know that a lot of people swear by it and you know there's uh, applying it correctly so i'm more than happy to just say that we weren't at either place we weren't um, Doing it right, but uh, just as a developer, it wasn't—it um, wasn't what I needed. It wasn't—it didn't work that well for me. It, and, and I mean, the team, um, there were annoyances that were just that far outweighed um, any benefits. Um, and mainly, it comes down to like the—it's uh, really hard to quantify and you know give story points to a unit of data work unless you already have like you know, a data platform and uh, all of the pos- all of the possible data <laughs> that you might want and modeled and stuff like that and you're just doing deliverables, maybe you can say, okay, this this deliverable is gonna take, you know, a week's time or, or whatever. Um, if it's anything short of that, which is reality, almost always, then I just don't think it works that well. What do you guys think?
1: I, I think it's complicated, I think, It can work better for maybe the engineering part in some cases where you do have a very specific roadmap. But I I think it's just important to differentiate between code commits on a project where you're adding very simple features or where you have very specific tech debt. you're checking off boxes, you're able to move tickets. Whereas data science and machine learning, especially in the exploratory phase, could just be so open-ended. There's really if you try to put too much structure around it you need structure right you need goals for work and such but if you have too much structure then you kill the creativity that leads to the interesting results so it's just a very fine balance i feel like what do you think that's
0: been some of the criticisms about applying agile to data science work too is it's um agile is bred and born from uh, software right And, and it has a very unique workflow Uh, When you start getting into things that are, again, probabilistic, uh, more exploratory, it doesn't really lend itself. And I've seen agile being abused in this context, right? Um, You know, because, you know, I've seen people try and apply it to their entire organizational workflows, Um, you know, and that's, and then people are like, God, I have to do these stupid two-week sprints uh, on work that basically has no end to it, Yeah. right? This this isn't like shipping a, a feature or something. It's just like now you're kind of um shoehorning in um you know a methodology it just isn't appropriate to the task at hand and again this is like requirements gathering for example right like okay i'm gonna put requirements gathering into a two-week sprint great uh good luck trying to get everybody corralled in two weeks uh and forcing them to to, you know have an opinion on stuff i think what this does is it necessarily putting timelines and stuff i think is good in some contexts, but in others it forces really bad um i think feedback and decisions because people feel um forced to just blurt something out versus think through it um in fact i responded to a post the other day um laszlo uh, stronger had a uh um he was critiquing somebody who um uh you know had a post about you know two scenarios basically one person makes decisions uh very quickly they're 70 percent right most of the time yeah and the other person uh you know makes makes fewer decisions. I'm like, I don't think we should be great. You know, then the the argument was like, you know, we'll we'll be more productive if we can make more decisions, right? And I think that's complete bullshit. Uh, Here's why it's, (laughs) you get paid for the quality of your decisions. You don't get paid for cranking out decisions, Um, you know, and even though there there might be reversible decisions, right? Uh, In aggregate, these these things do compound on themselves to the point where it's kind of takes on a life of its own. So I feel like, Applying again, applying stuff like agile is certainly appropriate and, and where you know how to use it. I think the problem is we tend to abuse it because we're agile uh, um, agileistas, as the old expression goes. So, but now that I've managed to piss off of all of LinkedIn, um, <laughs> yeah, that,
1: yeah, well, Mariah has this comment too, even about software that like you're doing agile, but you're sort of not doing agile at the same time. Oh, right? for
0: sure. Cargo cult agile,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, because the problem is that you still need. Agile is not great for like the grand scheme things. Like what is, what's my vision for this product? You know, what's, so it's, it's great to iterate on the interface. That's very important. But like, what's the overall design vision of the interface that that's maybe not something that fits so well into sprints. I don't know, like guys can weigh in.
0: Oh, which one? us? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Shatana. laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, just Even, uh, I do agree with you, you, Matt, that it maybe works uh, or we could argue that it works a little bit better for data engineering, especially if you're in the in the phase of like building out the platform um, or process that folks are folks are going to use going forward. But like to Joe's point, it is so important to have ownership over over a data product, over a data de- de- deliverable that like you can't just um, say, OK, we built it, we shipped it, we're done. Right. Like and owning it's something that is, um, uh, you know, one person will only be able to own so many data products. If you if you continuously move on to developing the next thing, like someone else either has to take over or you have to recognize that your work is now like, you know, no one no one's owning it. So you can't really depend on it. So I think that's another reason for which, like, if you're using Agile, and some of its ideas as a um, as a way to measure individual contributor productivity, right? I think it, it comes back uh, to bite you because uh, what what is the unit? Is it the number of data products you own, or data deliverables you own, or is it the number of pr prs that you're you know writing?
0: Yeah, then it goes back to Godart's law too, which is you know, you're gonna basically conform to however you're you're measured, and you're gonna game it. So yeah. Yeah, you know, and, it, and we see this all the time. And, and what happens is people sandbag all the time their, their uh their sprints and their stories and the and the issues, right? It's like, oh man, it's super hard. I probably only get like you know this number of tickets done this sprint. Sorry, um, let I me mean, just people are gonna be lazy. Hey, Adi, what's up? And let me uh, just
1: point out that Shantona is really jet lagged right now and she's still saying smart things, so. <laughs> Thank you for yeah hate to Maybe see her when better. she's actually on the top of her game then. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so. no, but I, yeah, yeah, I agree about the sandbagging. And one thing I've seen being on an agile team, we had this one week where, you know, we just, a lot of our stuff we did not hit and the managers. Like, why, why is our velocity so low this week? And I could go through one by one and tell you, well, this didn't go as expected. This thing didn't go as expected. It wasn't really a team failing. It's just like we, Bit up more than we could chew in this really complex project, and and that was fine in terms of in terms of like how we were running the project. We just needed to reassess the next week. But like trying to say that we were a really low performing team because our quote unquote you know point velocity was low, it's like all right, that's not really accurate in this case. Especially yeah. in
2: creative, more creative fields, right? And I mean, the other aspect is taking breaks is super important. If you're not feeling inspired. Uh, you're not gonna do good work. So if you're forced to like conform to like the that structure, it's just not gonna pay off.
0: Yeah, should roll that's a uh, good point here. People not always account for the cost of maintaining data products only for developing them. I think that's oh yeah, yeah. A fair point. Agree. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. 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 It's uh, super fun and the opportunity cost too, right? I think that's that's the un- un- under recognized one. Oh, yeah rant on that a lot. And then Roger um, has a question for us. Uh, wh- what do you all think about the role of data contracts in the context of data science products?
2: So <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take a quick pass at it. Um, so the way that I understand data, data contracts, and this is uh, prior to it becoming a, a buzzword is it is, you know, Data is passed around from system to system. It is the handshake between two systems when that data passage happens. Now, you know that might be very far from how it's understood today, but that's how sort of I think of it. And I think of most things as like inputs and outputs. Um, so to me, um, you know, whether you write it up in a YAML config and you know make it part of your you know release cycle, um, you know, there's pros and cons, and you know. Uh, if someone swears by the benefits of that, I'm not gonna like necessarily get up in arms about it. But um, the, it, I mean, it's a very simple, simple concept, right? It is that if two things are gonna talk to each other, they have to expect, like, they have to understand each other. That's it, right? Like the communicate for the communication to be effective, there should be a set of expectations from both sides, and then a set of like robustness built into it, such that if something is slightly off, then um, you can you can handle that. Um, so that's what data contracts are to me. And in the, again, data science p- products, what does that mean, right? Um, if we're, so like if I hear the words data science product, uh, the way that I would interpret is it is like the longer term, um, and like it could be an analytics uh, project, it could like whatever the use case is, whatever the purpose of, of this uh, product is, it's sort of uh, you're doing, some signs with data, right? And then you're productizing it. You have end users in mind. That's really all I think about when I think about product is you have these end users and you're building something for them that you think will be useful and you've done the work to validate that it should be useful for them. And then you work with them and iterate on it and, and like deliver what they're looking for. So it's like the highest level definition of product that I can come up with. Um, so in that, if, I'm, if I think of uh, a data product that I'm handing off to um, end users that let's say are not going to do further um, like they're consuming they're just they're data consumers they're not going to do further like downstream work with it then data contract simply doesn't enter that picture right because like i might have had data contracts leading up to that but the product is just to have enough now if my data product is more of a like data as a product right i own the data platform and the modeled data um, as well as the raw data but this is what I'm giving folks uh, who, who are gonna self-serve um, and do analytics or whatever their use cases may be there I have to be very clear about what it is the product that I'm providing them and for me that's product documentation that's not really a data contract that is you know it will include what are the different fields that I'm providing you what their you know expectations are like you know what what like a, a name column is going to be a string, and then, you know, like, it's going to be a certain length, and so on and so forth, that sort of stuff, I should give you in a cataloged way. So that's part of it. And then like, how to use this product, where it works and where it doesn't work, the assumptions that i made when I modeled the data, all of that information, it's my duty to give to you as a product owner. Um, But that's not a, again, like in this, today, uh, the way that data contract, The words are being used. That's not the same thing to me. So, so to me, data contract is simply as I am working with data in various stages, um, just the means of passing along information from one thing to another.
1: And let's just—I want to rewind real quick to Rahul's comment about that you brought up, Joe, about the cost of maintaining infrastructure, basically, um, which is that we so often in data science focus on the glamorous part of data science and machine learning exploration, developing new products, but a lot of it really is maintenance and it's critical to keep that in mind. And so if you are really lucky and really fortunate and you develop a recommender model that say, is estimated to bring in $50 million a year for your company, that's awesome. But the reality is once you do that, then you're in maintenance mode and tuning mode. And that's where data contracts become very, very valuable because if if someone breaks that model, how much is that costing the company? Per day, it's costing over a million dollars a day. And so you have to make sure that it keeps running correctly and that that data is passed off correctly. In the exploratory phase, it's harder to quantify the impact of broken data. It slows down your exploration, but like how much is that actually costing in the company? It's not maybe so clear.
0: Yeah, but I think as long as you're also addressing the root cause of those issues that caused the contract to to fail, right? I mean, all too often it's like, oh, broke. And then, you know, like, but it's always on the consumer end. That's where you find it out. I mean, that's where uh, Dan's comment here. Um, uh, you know, Don't consumers need guardrails and compliant use? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I think that would help. Uh, but it also comes back to making sure the producers and the consumers are communicating. There's a feedback loop between the two. So you're addressing, again, in the cost of, like, why did the sink break in the first place? Uh, you know, and for full disclosure, I've invested in a, you know, soon to be announced, very popular um, data contract Um company so i put my money where my mouth is i suppose that that should show you i believe in the power of these things yes um uh, adi she asks uh what are your thoughts on about data products and generative ai i don't have any oh great okay uh no more hype for you (laughs) um I think that I think that there's definitely some utility, depending if, if generative AI like, lends itself to a data product. I, I, again, I just see it as another tool in the toolbox. So, you know, if it lends itself well to it, then cool. Use it. Uh, but that's not the exclusion. I mean, there's so many other methods, too, right? And, um, you know, again, machine learning, statistical methods that we talked about. I mean, there's still time series stuff that has nothing to do with generative AI whatsoever. There's still, uh, uh, I mean... <laughs> Uh, I mean, I have a whole body of, of various machine learning techniques on my shelf here that you can go look at, and I, I don't think a generative AI will be doing anytime soon. So, I think it just depends on the approach you want to take. But I think if you want to make a lot of money real quick or raise a lot of money, um, then you probably want to have a data product that has generative AI for so
2: <laughs> and uses data spaghetti. Um, no, I uh, now that I understand, I think, uh, Adi's question better. I do think that if you have a tool, um, or you know, want to use a tool to like may- maybe, maybe I understand this is what I'm interpreting it as like, if you want to use a tool to like document your product better, or uh, even like you know, relate Gen, I to, Gen AI to, um, Data contracts, right? If like if you want to automate away some of that um, manual work with human in the loop, like you still want to like read to make sure that um, you know specifically Gen AI here, like you know documentation uh, from the documentation context, like large language models. But um, then that's I think that that's a good use, right? That that's a, that's a use case. It's a little bit like code autocomplete and stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and that kind of stuff I think is awesome just for productivity gains. I mean, then again, I mean, some of the code, you know, uh, I think Lazlo had pointed this out in one of his other posts. Uh, just go subscribe to Lazlo. He's, he's a good dude. Um, but he, yeah, I think he brought up a good point where the uh, um, code completion stuff from ChatGPT, I mean, he spent half his time just like going and fixing it, at which point he's like, I could move faster if I just wrote yeah. the code myself. And so that's, yeah, it's kind of like fixing the work of an intern or something I, I, I equate it to right now. Um, you know, an intern that might have a serious drinking or drug problem at the same time. Uh, hung over every day, (laughs) hung over every day shows up. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Um, living, living its best life. Uh, So, but yeah, these things will improve though. I mean, and and again, I just look at it as another tool in the toolbox. I don't think it's like we're on the path to, uh, um, you know, Skynet or something like that. But I, I think it is going to displace, I think a lot of, um, Types of work that are very rote and and you know I think as you point out things that could be done autocomplete or things that, that are very um, uh, procedural. I mean that's probably going to change, right? So, no, but I mean think of all the problems. I, mean, I was listening to all in podcasts this you know this weekend and I mean uh, we're in always a different podcast actually uh, this weekend started with Jason Calacanis. He was doing a um, they are both doing a Brad Gersner from Altimeter and him we we're doing an interview and Brad had a good point. It's like I mean think of how many problems we have to solve in this world right now. Like there's a lot of things going on. Do you, do you really think like chat GPT taking away like wrote tasks is, is a bad thing in that case? Like we should be working on a lot of these problems. So I agree.
1: And I'll, I'll put this comment, Dan's comment up as well. Um, which is training on trusted data. And it's funny, in the last couple of weeks, the shift there's actually been this shift in emphasis away from prompt engineering toward model refinement. Now, the question is, what does the whole business model look like in terms of licensing, You know, your ability to license Llama weights, for example, from Facebook and then train your own derived model? What will those techniques look like in the future? I think it remains to be seen, but that's... It's going to be
0: all on the blockchain, mind. Matt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's going to be all on the blockchain and yeah, that's how you do it. Actually, I'm probably not joking. It might be on the blockchain. I <laughs> Sorry. What I,
2: I think one of the things to keep in mind with like, doing transfer learning on top of LLMs is that your corpus is going to be a lot smaller than what the LLM is trained on. So it's going to be hard to make it unlearn incorrect things. It might. It's going to be easier to make it learn based off of your corpus, but like you're still going to get you know, falsehoods, if they existed in the original data set, which is the internet, so it will exist in the original data set. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I feel like one of the next big advances, whether this happens in like a year or five years, will be techniques that allow us to check the work of the LLM more automatically. So we're not like manually checking the intern's work and saying, hey, your code is wrong here and here. But we can actually test it and say, no, that's a bad response. Go back and give me something new.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I'm just thinking of the number of HR violations that a large language model is going to be committing because it was trained on the internet. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> You're fired. So, no severance for you.
0: Yeah, just, I mean, just, it gives you your answers, but like the most horribly like sexist, racist way possible. Um, like so, Or if some rogue employee internet. decides to like prompt engineer it to start giving these types of responses. I mean, I'm not joking. I think this is actually going to be a thing. People are going to be like, what just happened? Um, mm-hmm. So Reverse. Or, or it's... That?
2: money's at reverse prompt engineering.
0: Sorry, I cut you off, Joe. No, no, no. You're you're, uh, you're spot on. So it's uh, uh, fun times. It's already become kind of an issue,
1: Joe. I mean, there's this whole discussion of the people who have to, so they do the initial language training and then they do this human interaction training to actually solve some of these problems of terrible things. And the people who have that job, like just get exposed to the most awful stuff.
0: Well, and sadly, they're like usually underpaid workers, in you yeah. know, some developing nation too. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, just punt all that work off onto them. I mean, all the all the crap that we create on the internet, they get to go funnel through, and be like, yeah, it's a strange world. Anyway, um, I, I got to leave in a second, actually. Um, so, for the audience out there, if you're interested, uh, Bill Inman, uh, Robert Scott, and I are going to be doing a uh, workshop in a couple minutes. Um, so hop off to that but y'all can keep talking i guess so if you want to, uh, But want. anyway yeah fun chat i think we covered some good ground um I, I think we covered some ground we didn't expect to cover which is the uh, uh the, the feature not a bug of um monday morning data chat so uh, thanks for being on shantana
2: yeah absolutely my pleasure
0: yeah it's so much fun yeah <laughs> it yeah, always looks to to
2: now i know it is fun yeah
0: We'll have to have you back on. I think we...
1: Even uh, when you're jet lagged. Yeah. Yeah. You'll have to come back home. when you're i love that. You're doing just fine.
0: <laughs> yeah. I should be like twice as smart. And it's crazy. Um, now you're d- doing great already. So um, upcoming events. Um, let me see here. Matt, anything on your calendar you, you want to uh, uh Let's see.
1: I'll probably announce Maybe. a few things next week for
0: June. So. Next week, who? mysterious. Oh,
1: sorry. Are we, yeah, we are doing this next week, right? We decided we're gonna do it, yeah, yeah the
0: we're the gonna night. do a uh, next week a as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So Monday morning data chat, just gonna be the Joe and Matt show this time, but people seem to like that for some, some stupid reason, so so we'll be doing that. Um, what else is happening here? Um, not too much. Like I said, the event with uh, Bill is happening in just a second here, so I gotta pop off for that a uh, pretty empty week on my calendar so far. Um, you can subscribe to my new newsletter at joeresetsubstack.com. It comes out on the weekends um, if you want to do that. Uh, I don't know if, Matt, you have a sub stack coming out soon or... Uh, I, I need to get but, articles um, done. Je, Jess is... He's uh, got articles done. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And Shantana, do you want to give a shout out for anything you're up to?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but before I do, if either of you ever need someone to proofread your article, not like you know, proofread, proofread, but like just another head. I am more than happy to. I I love I love that. That's that's
1: fantastic. That's super helpful. (laughs) Often it's just bouncing an idea off someone like a conversation that you want to turn into an article.
2: Yeah. Um, Yes. So I'm throwing a happy hour in San Francisco on June 6th. Um, It's going to be at uh, I think it's called Bear Bottle um, in Salesforce Park. Uh, so June 6 in the evening, I think 5:30 to 8-ish. Um, just a low-key data happy hour community event. Um, it's been a while since I've been to SF. Just want to see folks and, and talk data. So that's something I'm excited about. Um, also, Mark and I are going to be spe- Mark Freeman and I are going to be speaking uh, for this data quality event that Absolver uh, and AWS are co-hosting. It's called an immersion day. We're going to talk about data quality issues, how to solve them, how to prevent them. So that's going to be fun. And then, uh, lastly, I'll be in uh, Vegas for Snowflake Summit. So if some folks are there, I'd definitely love to meet up.
0: Nice, it'll be fun. Um, I for yeah for the summits and stuff. I I there's I might be at Snowflake Summit. I might be at Databricks. It could be at both. Oh, and uh, the week before I'll be in, I'll be in Vancouver uh, speaking at a uh, daMA event. so if you happen to be in Vancouver BC uh, come say hi that's uh... oh and I am speaking this week at um, doing a panel uh, with Softserve so it's a fundraiser for Ukraine uh, so we'll just be talking about um, various uh, things and data so if you want to participate in that uh, it goes for a good cause so so there you go. Um, yeah, anyway. Hopefully, uh, your happy hour goes really well. The low key happy hours are awesome. I'm glad to see that this idea is uh, kind of taking on a life of its own and everyone's doing it now. So it's cool to see. Turns out people like to buy their own drinks. It's the weirdest thing. So um, cool. (laughs) All right. Cool. All right. Well, thanks to the audience, everybody. We'll see you all next week. Take care. Bye bye.
2: Take care.